We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 106 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the mode decision. The mode that Apollo would use to land on the moon was the most studied, analyzed, and debated decision made for the lunar landing program. There were four main choices. Direct Ascent, Earth Orbit Rendezvous, Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, and Lunar Surface Rendezvous. I've discussed mode in episodes 101 and 102, but no decision has been reached as of yet. In 1962, with the progression of the Saturn launch vehicles and the need to design and build a lunar landing vehicle, A decision had to be made to continue moving ahead on Apollo, especially if NASA was going to reach Kennedy's goal of lunar landing in the 1960s. This series of episodes is dedicated to the mode decision. In early 1961, NASA Administrator James Webb had inherited an agency assumption that direct ascent was probably the natural way to travel to the moon and back. It was attractive because it seemed simple in comparison to rendezvous, which required finding and docking with a target vehicle in space. But direct flight had drawbacks as well, primarily its need for the large rocket called Nova, which would be costly and difficult to develop and the direct flight mission itself had been worked out only in the most general terms. At a meeting in Washington in mid-1960, the first NASA administrator, Keith Glennon, had asked how a spacecraft might be landed on the moon. Max Faget of the Space Task Group had described a mission in which the spacecraft would first orbit the moon and then land, either in an upright position on deployable legs or horizontally, using skids on the descent stage. However, Werner von Braun of Marshall and William Pickering of JPL thought it would be unnecessary to orbit the moon first. Dr. Pickering is quoted as saying, quote, You don't have to go into orbit. You just aim at the moon, and when you get close enough, turn on the landing rockets and come straight in. Max Faget countered by saying, quote, That would be a pretty unhappy day if when you lit up the rockets they didn't light. End quote. Faget believed going into lunar orbit first gave the mission flexibility and survivability. But direct flight also had supporters outside NASA. 
The Air Force had worked since 1958 on a plan for a lunar expedition called Lunix. This proposal evolved from the earlier Man in Space Soonest study that had lost out in competition with Project Mercury. Major General Osmond J. Ritland, commander of the Space Systems Division of the Air Force Systems Command, viewed Lunix as a way to satisfy a dire need for a goal for our national space program. When Kennedy announced on 25th of May 1961 that a lunar landing would be that goal, the Space Systems Division offered to land three men on the moon and return them using direct flight and a large three-stage booster. Space Systems Division believed the mission could be accomplished by 1967 at a cost of $7.5 billion. But that offer was not accepted. Now back to Rendezvous. Rendezvous appeared dangerous and impractical to some NASA engineers, but to others, it was the obvious way to eliminate the need for a gigantic Nova-sized booster. Foremost among the variants in this approach was Direct Flight's chief competitor, Earth Orbit Rendezvous. The Von Braun Group had revealed an interest in this mode when it briefed Glennon in December 1958, which was long before the ABMA transferred from the Army to NASA. Von Braun had made a strong pitch for using Earth Orbit Rendezvous and the Juno 5, later called Saturn, booster. He was also very pessimistic about developing anything large enough for direct ascent. But Von Braun did agree that direct flight was basically uncomplicated, but he still favored Earth Orbit Rendezvous because smaller vehicles could be used. He sidestepped the problems of launching as many as 15 Saturns in rapid succession to rendezvous and dock in orbit to get the job done. And, as a side note, Earth Orbit Rendezvous would provide the most work for Von Braun's group. While working for the Army, the Von Braun team published a study called Project Horizon. Its purpose was to establish a lunar military outpost. Horizon justified bases on the moon in terms of the traditional military need for high ground, but it emphasized political and scientific gains as well. Again, the operational techniques would require launching several rockets and refueling a vehicle in Earth orbit before going to the moon. On June 18, 1959, NASA headquarters asked the ABMA for a study by the Von Braun team of a lunar exploration program based on Saturn boosters. In its report of February 1, 1960, the ABMA indicated there were several possibilities for a lunar mission, but only two, direct flight and Earth orbit rendezvous, seemed feasible and if a manned lunar landing and return was desired before the 1970s, the Saturn vehicle was the only booster system presently under consideration with the capability to accomplish this mission. 
After transferring to NASA and becoming the Marshall Space Flight Center, the Von Braun Group continued its plans for developing and perfecting its preferred approach. In January 1961, Marshall awarded 14 contracts for studies of launching manned lunar and planetary expedition from Earth orbit and for investigations of the feasibility of refueling in Earth orbit. By mid-year, Marshall engineers were gathering NASA converts to help them push for Earth orbit rendezvous. But across the country, from Huntsville, another NASA center had different ideas about the best way to put man on the moon. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, suggested a link-up of vehicles on the moon itself. JPL's plan was to land several unmanned vehicles on the moon first. One unmanned vehicle would be designed to return to Earth. The other unmanned vehicles would be fuel tankers. Then, using automatic devices, the return vehicle would be refueled and checked out by ground control before the crew left the Earth. After the manned spacecraft arrived on the moon, the crew would transfer to the fully fueled return vehicle for the trip home. One of the earliest proposals for this approach was put together by Alan B. Hazard, a senior development engineer at the laboratory. His 1959 plan laid the groundwork for JPL's campaign for lunar surface rendezvous during the Apollo mode deliberations. Even before President Kennedy's May 1961 challenge, Pickering had tried to sell lunar surface rendezvous to NASA's long-range planners. Earlier that month, he met in Washington with Abraham Hyatt, Director of Program Planning and Evaluation, to discuss this method of landing men on the moon. Pickering favored his mode because the Saturn C-2 would be adequate for the job. Unmanned spacecraft could develop the techniques of vertical descent and soft landing. NASA could space the launches months or even years apart, and the agency need not commit the manned capsule to flight until very late in the program, and then only if everything else was working. Pickering did admit that the small payload capability of the Saturn C-2 would restrict the early missions to one-man flights, but he contended that it was easy to extend the technique for larger missions as larger rockets become available. Hyatt assured Pickering that headquarters would examine all suggested modes, while confessing to a certain disbelief and very strong reservations about the lunar surface rendezvous mode. Now let's move on to some less well-known plans. The fact that the United States had no large boosters in its inventory caused several far-fetched schemes to surface. One such proposal promoted rendezvous and refueling while in transit to the moon, a concept pushed persistently by a company called Astra Co., 
During the summer of 1960, Astra Co. argued that the approach would improve the mission's capability of fixed-size Earth launch systems. At the request of Senator Paul Douglas, NASA officials met with two of the company's representatives in Washington on December 6, 1960. After a discussion of the physical aspects of this kind of rendezvous and an analysis of fuel consumption and weight factors, the visitors were told that NASA was not interested. Three months later, on March 14, 1961, Astraco took its case through another congressman to the NASA administrator, and Webb asked his staff to take a second look. William Fleming and Eldon Hall calculated that rendezvous while on the way to the moon would save very little weight and fuel in comparison with the Earth orbit rendezvous mode, and it would be far less reliable and consequently far more hazardous. Fleming recommended that this scheme be turned down once and for all, and Webb concurred. Another approach was the proposal to send a spacecraft on a one-way trip to the moon. In this concept, the astronaut would be deliberately stranded on the lunar surface and resupplied by rockets shot at him for conceivably several years until the space agency developed the capability to bring him back. Oh my. At the end of July 1961, E.J. Daniels from Lockheed Aircraft Corporation met with Paul Purser, technical assistant to Robert Gilruth, to discuss a possible study on this mode. Purser referred Daniels to NASA headquarters. Almost a year later, in June 1962, John N. Cord and Leonard M. Seal, two engineers from Bell Aerosystems, urged in a paper presented at the Institute of Aerospace Sciences meeting in Los Angeles that the United States adopt this technique for getting a man on the moon in a hurry while he waited for NASA to find a way to bring him back. They said the astronaut could perform valuable scientific work. Cord and Seal, in a classic understatement, acknowledged that this would be a very hazardous mission, but they argued that it would be cheaper, faster, and perhaps the only way to beat Russia. There is no evidence that Apollo planners ever took this idea seriously. Amid these likely and unlikely suggestions for overcoming the country's limited booster capability came yet another plan, Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, which seemed equally outlandish to many NASA planners. As the name implied, rendezvous would take place over the moon rather than around the Earth. A landing craft, a separate module, would descend to the lunar surface. When the crew finished their surface activities, they would take off in the lander and rendezvous with the mothership, which had remained in orbit around the moon. They would then transfer to the command module for the voyage back to the Earth. Early in 1959, 
This mode was seen primarily as a way to reduce the total weight of the spacecraft. Although most NASA leaders appreciated the weight saving, the idea of rendezvous around the moon so far from the ground was almost frightening. Perhaps the most identifiable lunar orbit rendezvous studies were those directed by Thomas Dolan of the Voigt Astronautics Division near Dallas. In December 1958, Dolan assembled a team of designers and engineers to study vehicle concepts, looking for ways for his company to share in any program that might follow Project Mercury. From mid-1959, the group concentrated on lunar missions, including a lunar landing as the most probable prospect for future aerospace business. Donlan and his men soon came up with a plan they called MAULER, an acronym for Manned Lunar Landing and Return. Dolan's group recognized very early that energy budgets were the keys to spaceflight. The group conceived a modular spacecraft, one having separate components to perform different functions. Dolan said, quote, one could perceive that some spacecraft modules might be applied to both Earth orbital and lunar missions, embodying the idea of multi-manned and multi-modular approaches to spaceflight, end quote. With this as the cornerstone of a lunar landing program, Dolan concluded that the best approach was to discard the pieces that were no longer needed and he saw no reason to take the entire spacecraft down to the lunar surface and back to lunar escape velocity. Mahler therefore incorporated a separate vehicle for landing maneuvers. At the end of 1959, the Dolan team prepared a presentation for NASA. Early in January 1960, J.R. Clark, Vice President and General Manager of Vault Astronomics, wrote Abe Silverstein about Dolan's concept. The Mahler proposal, Clark said, considered not only cost and vehicles, but also schedules. He also cited the advantages of the modular approach, mission staging, and the use of rendezvous. But nothing came of the proposal, although Dolan tried to interest NASA in Mahler for the next two years he found many technical people sympathetic to his ideas, but he was singly unsuccessful in winning financial support. He did get several small contracts from Marshall, but these were intended to bolster Marshall's stand on rendezvous in Earth orbit. Vault tried in vain to win part of Apollo, first competing for the feasibility study contracts in the latter half of 1960, and then, a year later, teaming with McDonnell Aircraft Corporation on the spacecraft competition. Because of these failures, Dolan and his group gradually lost the support of their corporate management. Thereafter, Vault mostly faded out of the Apollo picture, although the company competed and lost once more when the Lunar Landing Module contracts were awarded in 1962. As time passed, lunar orbit rendezvous began to gain strength. At Langley Research Center, 
Several committees were formed during 1959 and 60 to look at the role of rendezvous in space station operations. John Hobolt, assistant chief of the Dynamics Load Division who headed one of these groups, fought against being restricted to studies of Earth orbiting vehicles only. The mission the Hobalt team wanted to investigate was a landing on the moon. A more formal lunar missions steering group was established at Langley during 1960, largely through the efforts of Clinton Brown, chief of the Theoretical Mechanics Division. The Lunar Trajectory Group within Brown's division made intensive analysis of the mechanics in a moon trip. Papers on the subject were presented to the steering group and then widely disseminated throughout Langley. One of these papers, written by William Michael, described the advantage of parking the Earth return propulsion portion of the spacecraft in orbit around the moon during a landing mission. Michael explained that leaving the unit, which was not needed during the landing in orbit, would save a significant weight over that needed for the direct flight method. The lander, being smaller, would need less fuel for landing and takeoff. But he cautioned that this economy would have to be measured against the complications involved in requiring a rendezvous with the components left in the parking orbit. Brown Steering Group looked closely at total weights and launch vehicle sizes for lunar missions, comparing various modes. Arthur Vogley, in particular, concentrated on safety, reliability, and potential development programs. Max Kerbgen studied terminal guidance problems, and John Bird worked on designs for a ladder. They concluded that lunar rendezvous was the most efficient mode they had studied. On December 14, 1960, however, personnel from Langley went to Washington to brief Associate Administrator Robert Siemens on the possible role of rendezvous in the National Space Program. When he first joined NASA three months earlier, Siemens had toured the field centers. At Langley, Hobolt had given him a 20-minute talk on lunar orbit rendezvous, using rough sketches to illustrate his theory. Siemens had been sufficiently impressed by this brief discussion to ask Hobolt and his colleagues to come to Washington in December and make a more formal presentation. At this meeting, Hobalt spoke on the value of rendezvous to spaceflight. Brown presented an analysis of the weight advantages of lunar orbit rendezvous over direct flight. Bird talked about assembling components in orbit, and Kerbgen gave the results of some simulations of rendezvous indicating that the maneuver would not be that difficult. Hobalt closed the session remarking that rendezvous was an undervalued technique so far, but NASA should seriously consider its worth to the lunar landing program. Several members of Siemens staff viewed the weight savings claim with skepticism, but Siemens was understanding. He had just completed a study for RCA on the interception of satellites in Earth orbit, and it occurred to him that some of the concepts he had studied might well be adapted to lunar operations. Back in Virginia, 
The Langley researchers have been trying to get their space task group neighbors interested in rendezvous for Apollo. On January 10, 1961, Hobalt and Brown briefed Kurt Strauss, Owen Maynard, and Robert O'Neill, who was less than enthusiastic about the lunar orbit rendezvous scheme. He conceded that it might reduce the weight 20%, but any other than a perfect rendezvous would detract from the system weight savings. From December 1960 to the summer of 61, Langley continued its analysis of lunar orbit rendezvous as it applied to a manned lunar landing. Bird and Stone, among others, studied hardware concepts and procedures, including designs and weights for a lunar lander, landing gear, descent and ascent trajectories between the landing site and the lunar orbit, and final rendezvous and docking maneuvers. Their findings were distributed in technical papers throughout NASA and in papers presented to professional organizations and spaceflight societies. In the spring of 1961, these Langley engineers compiled a paper proposing a three-phase plan for developing rendezvous capabilities that would ultimately lead to manned lunar landings. Step 1. Manned Orbital Rendezvous and Docking Using a Mercury Capsule to Prove the Feasibility of Manned Rendezvous and to Establish Confidence in the Techniques. Step 2. Apollo Rendezvous Phase Using Atlas, Agena, and Saturn Vehicles to Develop a Variety of Rendezvous Capabilities in Earth Orbit. And third, Manned Lunar Landing Involving Rendezvous employing Saturn and Apollo components to place men on the moon. Hobalt urged that NASA implement this program through study contracts. This next segment describes the process and persistence of Langley's John Hobalt to promote lunar orbit rendezvous. When the special NASA committees in 1961 were trying to get the Apollo program defined, Hobalt made the rounds, making certain that everyone knew of Langley's Lunar Orbit Rendezvous Studies. At a meeting of the Space Exploration Program Council on January 5th and 6th, his arguments for a lunar rendezvous were lost in the attention being given to direct flight and Earth orbit rendezvous. In Washington on the 27th and 28th of February, when headquarters sponsored an inter-center rendezvous meeting, Hobalt again summarized Langley's recent efforts, but both the Gilroof and Von Braun teams stood solidly behind their respective positions, direct flight and earth rendezvous. On May 19th, Hobalt bypassed the chain of command and wrote directly to Siemens to express his belief that Lunar Orbit Rendezvous was not receiving due consideration. He pointed out that the American Booster Development Program was in poor shape and that NASA appeared to have no firm plans beyond the initial version of the Saturn C-1. Hobalt was equally critical of NASA's failure to recognize the need for developing rendezvous techniques because of the lag in launch vehicle development he said it seemed obvious that the only mode available to NASA in the next few years 
would be rendezvous. In June, the London group met. The group was the first team specifically authorized to examine anything other than direct flight. Hubbalt talked to the group about his concept. Although the London committee initially seemed interested in Hobalt's description of lunar orbit rendezvous, only lunar surface rendezvous scored lower in their final report. During July and August, Hobalt had almost the same reaction from Donald Heaton's committee. Although this group had been instructed to study rendezvous, the members interpreted that mandate as limited to Earth orbit rendezvous. Hobalt himself, a member of the committee, pleaded with the others to include lunar orbit rendezvous. But, he later recalled, time after time he was told, No, no, no. Our charter only applies to Earth orbit rendezvous. Some of the members, seeing how deeply he felt about the mode question, told him to write his own report to Siemens explaining his convictions in detail. Growing discouraged at the lack of interest, Hobalt and his Langley colleagues began to see themselves as sole champions of the technique. They decided to change their tactics. The only way to do it, Hobalt said later, was to go out on our own, present our own documents and our own findings, and make our case sufficiently strong that people would have to consider it. Hobalt felt that Things were looking up when the Space Task Group asked him to prepare a paper on rendezvous for the Apollo Technical Conference in mid-July 1961. At the dry run, however, when he and other speakers presented their papers for final review, Hobalt was told to confine himself to rendezvous in general and to throw out all that lunar orbit rendezvous stuff. The next opportunity Hobalt had to fight for his cause came when Siemens and John Rubel established the Golovin Committee. Nicholas Golovin and his team were supposed to recommend a set of boosters for the National Space Program, but they found this an impossible task unless they knew how the launch vehicles would be used. This group was one of the first to display serious interest in Langley's rendezvous plan. At a session on August 29th, when Hobalt was asked, In what areas have you received the most violent criticism of these ideas? He replied, quote, Everyone says that it is hard enough to perform a rendezvous in Earth orbit. How can you even think of doing a lunar rendezvous? My answer is that rendezvous in lunar orbit is quite simple. No worries about weather or air friction. In any case, I would rather bring down 7,000 pounds to the lunar surface than 150,000 pounds. This is the strongest point in my argument. End quote. Realizing that he at last had his chance to present his plan to a group that was really listening, Hobalt called John Byrd and Arthur Vogley, asking them to hurry to Washington to help brief the Golovin Committee. Afterward, the trio returned to Langley and compiled a two-volume report describing the concept and outlining in detail a program based on the lunar orbit mode. 
Langley's report was submitted to the Gallivan Committee on October 11, 1961. After it had been thoroughly reviewed, its highlights were discussed favorably in the Gallivan Report. Instead of resting after his labors with the Gallivan Committee, Hobart went back to Langley and the task of getting out his minority report on the Heaton's Group findings. He submitted it to Siemens in mid-November with a cover note that said in part, quote, I am convinced that man will first set foot on the moon through the use of ideas akin to those expressed herein, end quote. His report to Siemens, a nine-page indictment of the planning for America's lunar program to date, was a vigorous plea for consideration of Langley's approach. Hobalt wrote, quote, Somewhat as a voice in the wilderness, I would like to pass on a few thoughts on matters that have been of deep concern to me over the recent months. Hobalt explained to Siemens that he was skipping the proper channels because the issues were crucial. After recounting his attempts to draw the attention of others in NASA to the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous scheme, Hobalt noted that, regrettably, there was little interest shown in the idea. He went on to ask, quote, Do we want to get to the moon or not? End quote. If so, why not develop a lunar landing program to meet a given booster's capability instead of building vehicles to carry out a preconceived plan? Why is NOVA, with its ponderous size, simply just accepted? And why is a much less grandiose scheme involving rendezvous ostracized or put on the defensive? Noting that it was the small Saturn C3 that was the pacing item in the lunar rendezvous approach, he added, I would not be surprised to have the plan criticized on basis that it was not grandiose enough. A principal charge leveled at Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, Hobalt said, was the absence of an abort capability, lowering the safety factor for the crew. Actually, he argued, the direct opposite was true. The Lunar Rendezvous method offered a degree of safety and reliability far greater than that possible by the direct approach, he said, but it is one thing to gripe another to offer constructive criticism, Hobalt conceded. He then recommended that NASA use the Mark II Mercury in a manned rendezvous experiment program and the Saturn C-3 and lunar rendezvous to accomplish the manned lunar landing. Siemens replied to Hobalt early in December. He said, quote, I agree that you touched upon facets of the technical approach to manned lunar landing which deserved serious considerations, end quote. Siemens also commended Hobalt for his vigorous pursuit of his ideas, saying it would be extremely harmful to our organization and to the country if our qualified staff were unduly limited by restrictive guidelines. The associate administrator added, that he believed all views on the best way to carry out the manned lunar landing were being carefully weighed and that lunar orbit rendezvous would be given the same impartial consideration as any other approach.
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.